0: Thank you, Mark. One person is awake. Um, I'm so glad to be here. This is like a homecoming. Um, I uh, thank you, Paul, for all the things you you said. Um, We are, this has been just such a, a, a great season of ministry this year at UNC Wilmington, um, which is kind of strange that you wouldn't really think that a year of coronavirus quarantine and, you know, students being put in a a decommissioned dorm that was basically a prison for them to be in quarantine whenever they got sick and these other things would be a really fruitful spiritual year, but it really was. And um, the Lord Jesus is on the throne and um, he is rescuing sinners he is opening the eyes of the blind. Um, he is bringing life and hope and help to students at UNC Wilmington and talking to other my campus minister friends you know all over the country i mean he 's doing it all over the country and the world, and I think this is uh, going to be we 're going to look back on this as a season of deep, deep suffering, but also you know deep gospel growth and and revival so Uh, thank you to this church for supporting us. Um, Christ community supports us uh, by praying for us. Like every month, the missions team emails me asking how they can be praying. And um, also financially, I mean, Christ community and then individuals here give generously to make sure that, you know, I can feed my family and pay our mortgage and do this ministry. And that is extremely appreciated. And then also, uh, the college ministry here, it just practically partners with what we're trying to do on campus in so many different ways. And we kind of feed into each other and assist each other along with other campus ministries on the campus at UNCW and other student organizations. So, uh, thank you. You just, by being here and by giving to the church, uh, y'all are supporting uh, good gospel work that's happening at UNC Wilmington. At least I think it's good. Um, Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, you you have spoken your word. And after everything else falls away, after the mountains crumble into the sea and the seas dry up, your word will still stand. After the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word will still stand. So help us to attend to your word with humility, uh, with patience, with faith. Uh, open our ears, open our hearts, and open our hands, Father. We, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, So this semester, we were uh, doing a series on how the gospel, the good news that Paul talked about, that that God, the holy (laughs) creator of everything in heaven and on earth, the fact that, that, that the news that that God is turning toward a sinful and rebellious people in forgiveness and mercy and love. Like that... That news, how embracing that news, how receiving that news, how responding to that news in faith and repentance changes the way we conduct our relationships. And at the very end of this series, we, we started looking at Micah 6 8, mainly because Micah 6 8 um, is a verse that, that people will look at a lot to talk about how our relationship ought to be uh, with the poor. With a special subset of people that you might call you know, the poor or the disadvantaged. And there was one uh, word in particular in that uh, passage that just tripped people up. And it even tripped me up as I was trying to study what Micah 6, 8 was really about, and that was that little word justice. And so today I, I want to look at kind of Micah 6, 6 through 8 through Psalm 146 and some other places in the Bible where the Bible talks about uh, what justice really is. And I think the reason that I think it's really important to look at this word in particular is because, um, one, I love words. Like I, I'm just a person that loves. Word. I love learning new words. Like I, I like reading, and if I if I come to a book that has like a strange word that I haven't heard before, I want to use that word. And you'll know me. Like Shauna's nodding her head because it, she knows if I've learned a new word, I'm going to say it like several times that week, just so I can like get it in, you know, the brain. Um, and I think justice is one of those words that actually we as Christians are in danger of losing. It's one of those words that especially um, evangelical Bible-believing Christians were like afraid of saying it almost. And I just think, if the Bible's not afraid of saying it, why are we going to be afraid of saying it? Like, I don't want to lose a perfectly good word that the Bible uses all the time. I want to like learn how to use it. And so what I, the, the practice that I want to commend to you specifically in this instance, and then also just in general, is a practice that I learned. uh, Will Cooper and uh, Pete Arnomenko and a couple of us were uh, looking at this book called The Common Rule, where this guy was basically talking about how to reorder the habits of your life uh, according to just biblical patterns of uh, feasting and fasting and rest and renewal. And the first habit that he recommends that people Uh, take to kind of detox from uh, our society and our culture and realign ourselves is um, this habit called Bible before phone. And I just think that is such a, I mean, you kind of know what it says even, I don't even have to explain it, but it's this idea that don't look at your phone until you've looked at the Bible. When you wake up in the morning, let the first words that kind of shape your interpretation of reality be God's words and not some other person's words. Even a well-meaning person, even a person that you like, even a person that may be a Christian that happened to be writing a blog or had a Twitter post or something like that. Guess what? Their their words are still human words. They're not God's words. And so the practice that he is saying that we should do, and I think that, that, that I would commend us to do, is to first let God's word shape us to almost to do what John Calvin says, which is to put on the scriptures as glasses, as spectacles, through which we view every other thing in the created world, including ourselves. So to put Bible before news, Bible before blogs, Bible before Twitter, Bible before you know Facebook, Bible before our phones, and instead look at these issues and these concepts and these problems through the lens of Scripture, rather than looking at these concepts that are in Scripture through the lens of whatever we heard on our favorite news station or from our favorite pundit or from whatever take that we have out in the culture. Does that make sense? Because one of the things I'm trying to do at UNC Wilmington is to teach students to live under the authority of the Bible. To live and to say, okay, where can I go to find truth, like true truth that I can really, really trust? And a practical way you do that is to let the Bible correct the takes on current events and situations and public policies that you hear from out there and also even to correct your own thoughts and inclinations of your own heart. So to put Bible before phone, and that's what we're going to do. Specifically, I want us to take a look and say, okay, what does the Bible say about this hotly contested term, justice? That people both on the right and people both on the left um, seem to have differing ideas about what justice actually is and what justice consists of and what justice means. So what I want to suggest to you uh, from Micah 6.8, and the, the kind of greater um, context of Micah 6, is remember, uh, M- you know, Micah is one of the minor prophets. He's writing um, to God's people who are experiencing God's discipline because they have walked away from his plan. Uh, they're God's chosen people, God's rescued people, and the prophet Micah is trying to uh, show God's people where they have strayed and how to come back to God in faith and repentance. And so in Micah 6, the people are saying, well, what should we do? How should we approach this God in worship? Like, what's the best way to kind of get at him and get access to him? And they start listing all these different things that they could do. These like very impressive religious things. Like, I mean, I don't know, should I like give my firstborn child up? And God's like, no, definitely not. That's what the pagan nations do. That's how you approach all these other gods. Here's what I want you to do. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with God. Okay, so what does it look like actually to do justice? If justice isn't just like a concept out in the world, but actually something that human beings, especially redeemed human beings, are expected by God to do. What would it mean to do justice? Well, I want to look at this question in two parts. First, I want to talk about the hope of biblical justice. And I say biblical justice as, a part, you know, as opposed to other definitions and concepts of justice. So, so what, what is the hope of biblical justice? And what is the help of biblical justice? So first, what is the hope of biblical justice? The hope of biblical justice that we can hang our hat on, the promise of biblical justice is defined by God Himself. Like God sets the standard and is the source for what this concept of justice is that we're we're hoping in and we're looking to. Um now one way of talking about biblical justice is just that it's this, it's God's agenda for his creation. Uh, and it is uh, connected to, in the old Testament, this concept of justice is connected to all kinds of different words. And so really you have to look at both God's words in the Bible and also God's works in the Bible to kind of get a definition of what justice is. So just, I, I want to paint a picture So that we can all get on the same page and let let God kind of define what justice is for us. So there's a couple words, and just bear with me while we talk about this. I just want to kind of do some work in the background to help us get there. There's a couple Old Testament concepts that all, if you put them together, they kind of make a triangle, and in the middle, that's like the, the range of what is meant by justice. So the first side is this idea of wholeness. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's called peace. You might have heard this Hebrew word, shalom, which basically just means wholeness, health, interconnectedness. It is um, a picture of all different parts of creation. Uh, Human beings in society, uh, the physical environment, our relationship to the material world, all of those things being woven together in order and beauty, and peace. That's what shalom is. Um, there's this, this concept, uh, Martin Luther King actually talked about this. This is an incredibly biblical quote. He says, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one person directly, affects all indirectly. Do you hear what he's saying? Like you, you drop one little stone in the river, the ripples come out and they affect every other molecule of water in the river. Why? Because they're all part of the same river. They're all connected, right? You can't pollute one side of a, a lake and it not affect the people who are drinking from the other side of the lake, right? Because it's all part of the same lake. And so this idea of shalom is that, that all of humanity, all of human society, indeed, and all of the, the created order is connected in a way that you, what you do as a discrete individual actually affects your neighbors in a really profound way, more than you even know. So that's the first idea, a uh, wholeness or, or shalom. And the second is this concept of equity, which we get. When we talk about justice, we, we, we think of like equity, meaning fairness, like people get what they deserve. So, you know, if someone does a crime, right, and they really did the crime, and it's a crime that, offer, that uh, has a $5 penalty, for instance. I do not know what kind of crime has a $5 penalty, but let's, you know, <laughs> I don't know. So uh, you know, a $5 penalty, it would be unjust for them uh, to have to pay a $50 penalty, right? Because that, that's, that's not um, appropriate. It's, it's not, um, they're not actually getting what they deserve there. Do you understand and so when we talk a lot, especially, I think, in America, um, when we tend to think of justice, um, especially in the evangelical church, what we often think about is we think of this as like the penal justice, uh, the, the punishment type justice. We think, okay, people need to get what they deserve. And that's when justice is served. Um, so uh, Proverbs 11.1 1 talks about this. He says, uh, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And what what is it talking about? What's a just weight? Well, if you were a merchant and someone was like, I would like to buy five pounds of flour. And you're like, great, well, here's, you know, five, my five pound stone, and I'll put it on one side of the weight. And then uh, we'll just put five pounds of flour. And then you'll know how much and when it's equal, then you've got five pounds. Well, an unjust weight is when a merchant would kind of say, well, here's my five pound stone, but it's really his four pound stone. And the person, the customer had no idea. They can't like measure it because he's the one who's got the scales, right? And so they're forced to pay more for less and this person purposely disadvantages this other person. That's a violation of justice. When the weights are the way the weights are supposed to be, that's not just fair. The Bible calls that just. And so we, but that, that makes sense to us, right? Um, so a just weight is about equity. And when equity is violated, that's, that's injustice. And God is bothered by that he stands against that. But then there's this, this third side of the triangle and, um, you might call it, uh, justice as order. You know, if equity is a kind of fairness, meaning, uh, equalness, you know, order is this idea of fairness as like beauty, because we can say something's fair, meaning like it's not balanced. Um, someone's disadvantaged, or we can say something's fair, like, wow, she was, has the fairest dress at the party. And what are we saying? We're saying there's, there's something um, beautiful about it. There's some quality to it that commends it to us, that we just think, this is the way a dress is supposed to be, right? And so th- there's that other side to biblical justice also, that um, justice isn't just about uh, punishment, but it's also about restoring shalom. It's restoring that beautiful order that God intended for the world. That when that that beautiful order is defaced or damaged in some way, that the restoration of that is a doing of justice because you're correcting an an injustice. Um, Okay, so so those are the, the concepts Of God's word. But I think most clearly, especially in Psalm 146, you see justice through God's works, through the way he acts. It says that God is gracious, compassionate, and merciful. I mean, I just love this picture of of God in verses five through nine in Psalm 146. And honestly, I mean, if you just go through Psalm 146 all the way to Psalm 150, it's just, just, you know, firework after firework of God's character and his beauty and his truth and his righteousness. And so it's commending us to, to, to look at the God of Israel and to say, okay, what is so great about this God? And then it goes to talk about his actions, his works. Verse seven, God executes justice for the oppressed. What does that look like? he gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the sojourners. Okay, so how, how does that fit into our categories of what justice is, right? I mean, do, do, do blind people deserve to have their, is it unfair for them to be blind? Um, in a sense, the Bible is saying all these effects of sin that have distorted the world, what God is doing is He's restoring the humanness to people whose humanity is threatened. Now the, these um, these categories of people you know you know the blind, the the, the prisoner, the sojourner, the, the widow. Uh, sojourner means immigrant, like someone who's a member of an out group who doesn't uh, fit in with the majority. Um, So so God taking special care to that person. Those classes of people, there's there's four classes of people that throughout the Old Testament, when it talks about justice, about doing justice, it refers to these people, and and theologians call them the, the quartet of the vulnerable. The poor, widows, orphans, and immigrants. That those are people for whom their humanness is at risk. That if if you're a a prisoner, or if you are um, a widow, that you can actually be taken advantage of, that you can be treated, you know, in in a work situation, you can actually be treated like an animal and not like a person. Because people don't give you your rights. If you're a prisoner that you can feel sitting in that cell, maybe paying the punishment that you need to be paying for your crime because that's justice, you know, punishment justice. But if you're treated like an animal and not like a human, that is injustice. That's a violation of shalom. And so restoring the dignity, restoring the humanness to human beings that are made in God's image, that is what justice looks like. And so God is saying, look at what I'm going to do. Look at what I am about. Um, Russell Moore, uh, he says that, that justice is about the godness of God and the humanness of human beings. Recognizing the godness of God, that he is the standard, that he is the authority by which all human actions are judged. That he what what he calls good is good and what he calls evil is evil. And restoring the humanness of human beings. That even the most broken, the most desperate, the most disadvantaged human being is a person made in God's image who has infinite dignity and value. And I just want (laughs) to, this is so incredible because in the ancient Near East, for a group of people to say, we have a God who cares about the poor. We have a God who cares about the blind. We have a God who cares about the physically and mentally uh, disabled. We have a God who cares about the ones that society forgets. All the other cultures, you know, the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Assyrians, they would look at a God like that and they would say, what a weak God. What a pitiful God. I mean, you have a God who loves the poor? I mean, there's a radical idea, by the way, in the Bible. When Genesis says that Adam and Eve, that mankind, without distinction, were made in God's image, that was a revolutionary idea. Why? In the ancient Near East, the only people who were thought of as made in the image of God were princes, were rulers, were nobility. Never the poor. Never just the ordinary human being. But the Bible is saying everyone has equal dignity. And so imagine this. Imagine you're a refugee from a foreign war. You come in within the borders of Israel and you hear them singing this song about their God who loves people just like you. What they would say is, who is this God and how can I know him? How can I serve him? I've never heard of a God like this God. You see, because every other religion is based upon this principle. If you work hard, if you do the right thing, if you're successful enough, then God will love you. Then you'll be blessed. But biblical religion, (laughs) throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, shares this message that God is a God who rescues the slaves. He rescues the oppressed. He lifts up the brokenhearted and the needy. He blesses them, and then they can be a blessing. That he accepts them, that he adopts them into his family, and then he teaches them to live as they should. So God is the source and the standard for our justice. And the reason that this is so important that we come back to the Bible for this is because you hear a concept like social justice, which that's the one that people really get frustrated about. And sometimes I kind of get sensitive. And, I, and instead of saying social justice, I say um, uh, public righteousness, which is like the exact same thing. Because righteousness is like a synonym for justice in the Bible. And then public, meaning like out in the public sphere, in relationships, that's the same thing as social But public righteousness is defined by God according to how you treat other people, all kinds of different people, but especially needy people, especially disadvantaged people, especially people um, who lack the agency to advocate for their own rights. So that God is the source and the standard for for whatever we want to talk about, about, about justice, about righteousness, whether private personal righteousness or public social righteousness. So God is the source and the standard, which is great, super great. We hear this message about God's justice, about the beauty of the biblical God, and that brings hope. But the psalm the psalmist says something else, that God isn't just the hope of the needy. God is also the help of the needy. And in fact, all throughout the Old Testament, the assumption was that when you came into Israel, you weren't just given like a, you know, pie in the sky, by and by, you know, one day you'll go to heaven, then everything will be all right, kind of hope. That in fact, you would receive real help. Deuteronomy 15 is this incredible passage And it's kind of confusing, right? At the very beginning of Deuteronomy 15, God's talking to his people about how they're supposed to live in the land. And he says in the very beginning, be generous to your neighbor. Be generous, like help out people financially so that there will never be the poor among you. That you should be so generous with people that are in your community, that are in your neighborhood, that nobody will be poor among you in Israel. And then at the very end of Deuteronomy 15, It says, you know, do all this stuff and make sure to do all this stuff and don't forget to do all this stuff. Why? Because you will always have the poor among you. (laughs) What are they talking about? (laughs) I mean, are there going to be poor among us or not? And what God is trying to remind us is that there's constantly going to be needy people and they will have material needs. But what we're going to do, God says, this is what we're going to do. My people is we're going to make it so that people don't feel like their identity is, I'm poor. That they don't feel all the effects of being poor, even though they may actually be poor. They may actually not be as materially well off, but they won't feel the sting and the stigma and the dehumanizing effects of being poor. Now, the way that God helps us in his justice, I think is remarkable. And we just have to say, the New Testament gives us a lot of help in this. Because the primary way that God helps is the Bible says that God um, intends that justice is done through his justified people. So justice, meaning equity, um, God is always fair, you know, that he punishes the guilty. But if we're reading this and, and you're realizing, oh, God has a heart for the poor, like God is commanding generosity. Oh my goodness. I have been close handed. I have been judgmental towards my neighbor. What does that make you? It makes you wicked <laughs> according to the Bible. And it says right here in Psalm 146, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. But then there's this class of people that God loves that he advocates for. And who are they? The righteous. The righteous. Okay, so how can a wicked person be counted as righteous? How can can a person who has done wrong, who has done people wrong, instead of having God stand against them and bring their way to ruin, how can they find their way into God's favor and see their father's smile? How can that happen? Well, Romans 3 says that God gave Christ as a propitiation for our sins, as payment for our sins, so that he could both be just, meaning punishing the guilty, punishing sin righteously, so that he could be just and also be the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. That in Christ we have a God who justifies the ungodly, who brings the wicked into a righteous standing with him, So then they can respond in righteousness and faith and obedience. And so the first way that God helps is through the justifying work of Jesus Christ, that his justification enables us to live justly. So it's through Christ, but then it's also through his church. Because I I just want you to imagine this for a moment. Someone comes in and they're reading Psalm 146, and they're saying, okay, God sets prisoners free. God is opening the eyes of the blind." God is lifting up those who are bowed down. You might even be singing this this psalm at the temple in Israel, and then you're walking out and you see someone who's bowed down. And you're wondering, God wants to lift that person up. There's a a widow. There's, There's an orphan right there. God is upholding them. And then the widow and the orphan is looking to that person, walking out of the worship service, and they're going, I have just heard you sing that there is a God who cares about me. How am I going to know? Prove it. God helps through his justified people. That God is calling us to show the world what he is actually like by the way we treat other people. You know, Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that, that people would see our good deeds, meaning our just deeds, our righteous deeds, like our acts of justiceness. He would see us doing justice and give glory to the Father in heaven. That it would actually bring us glory, but it would reflect to the majesty and the beauty of who God is. There's this amazing passage in Acts chapter four where it talks about the early church and the way they were together. And it says, there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because they were doing Deuteronomy 15. That the New Testament people who were so overwhelmed by God's acceptance and love that they said, this is my brother. This is my neighbor. I've been rescued. Not because I earned it, not because I deserved it, but out of sheer mercy and grace. And then they see their neighbor who's in need. And they say, how can I close my hand to you? Let me show you mercy. Let me show you grace. Do you see how it's supposed to work? God is the hope. Christ and the church are the help. Uh, There's this amazing um, story in uh, a book that Tim Keller wrote called Generous Justice that gives us a picture, I think, of how this might work. Uh, It talks about a researcher who is talking about the effects of deafness in society and how people with a disability of of deafness kind of encounter things. And in the 1800s on the island of Nantucket, due to like genetic things with like not a lot of people in the same amount of place, just having kids over and over again, uh, that there was like a quarter of the population was deaf. And the researcher was saying, okay, so what was it like? Like, what was the experience like for deaf people on this island? And um, she was interviewing someone who was like a little kid at the time. And they had heard stories from from their, their parents and their grandparents about what it was like. And they said, well, you know, we didn't treat them different than anyone else. They were just like another citizen of the island. And then the researcher said, well, I mean, surely it, it must have been hard for them, right? I mean, they couldn't hear and, and all these other things. And they said, oh, no, everyone spoke sign language. And the researcher said, wait a minute. Uh, I mean, you, like the family members of the people, he said, oh, no, no, no. Everyone spoke sign language, the whole island. Because we just decided, you know, they're our neighbors. And so everyone, <laughs> not just family members of deaf people, they said, we don't want you to feel less human. We don't want you to feel other. And so we're going to disadvantage ourselves to bring you in, to welcome you. That's justice. And I just wonder, the, the reason I love talking about this with y'all is I think Christ's Community, uh, like so many other churches in town, or l- unlike I think you do this more than any other church in town. I would say, want to be very careful, um, because there are other people who are doing this, but you all do this so so well. Is you look around in your neighborhood, you look around at the needs of people around you, and you say, how can we bring hope? How can we be a help? There's there's people who who want to have access to vaccines, and they don't have access to vaccines. That seems not equitable. We could probably do something about that. And so you spend your time, you spend your talent, you spend your money, and you, you, you give people hope and help um, because of the God who is your hope and help. And you are shining like lights in this city. So thank you. And I would just say, let's do more of it. <laughs> yeah i 'm talking about this with my, uh, my college students, and just wondering, okay, what would it look like if we took these words to heart? What would it look like if we saw ourselves in the eyes of other people who were needy and if we thought of creative ways to restore the humanness of people who are made in god 's image? What would that look like? What would that do? How would that bring hope? How would that help?